If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Before we get started today, I wanted to tell you about something awesome I recently discovered. Not only do I love great stories, I enjoy excellent music that tells stories. I've always been a sucker for the concept album. Records like Pink Floyd's The Wall, Yellow's Time, and Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds remain ever-present on my playlist. You have to bear in mind, I'm an album-length music listener. Some artists truly understand the craft of putting a collection of songs into a running narrative. Nobody ever told me about Wax Taylor. I had to discover him on my own. This French record producer puts together some of the most innovative hip-hop I've ever heard. He uses an expert mix of musicians, samples, and loops to weave together a tapestry of multi-flavored texture and melody. He released a concept album called Dusty Rainbow from the Dark. The album's story follows a little boy, sad, sitting in his room. To either cheer him up or to educate him, his mother puts a record on a turntable for him. As the boy listens, he grows to understand the potency and messages found in music. He goes through more records. A rainbow extends from his record player. The rainbow eventually catches the boy up into the air. He learns to understand the breadth of life in music. The boy grows up. He lives through both good and bad times, but he never forgets the night his mother introduced him to music. Wax Taylor tells a compelling story, using music as a metaphor for life. Since discovering the album, Dusty Rainbow from the Dark, I've listened to the whole thing many times. If you like concept albums, this one is for you. But I do recommend you find the time to listen to the entire record all in one go. Only then can you experience the full effect of Wax Taylor's work. For today's story, I give you part two of Old Hicks, a hypno nightmare. If you recall, part one of this story referenced Dr. Walter Jackson Freeman II. He performs transorbital lobotomies on several patients at the Old Hicks Insane Asylum. Dr. Freeman is a real person. He specialized in the procedure and performed more than 3,000 lobotomies during the years of his practice. His procedure, thought to stabilize patients who suffered debilitating mental disorders such as schizophrenia, became the go-to treatment for even mild mental disorders such as depression, anxiety, and conduct disorder. The procedure performed by Dr. Freeman was supposed to reduce agitation and tension, but it brought on more impactful side effects, such as passivity, lack of initiative, lack of focus, and reduced emotion and regard for life. Many who underwent the procedure passed away or became vegetative. The procedure described in Old Hicks, performed by Dr. Freeman himself, accurately represents the operation, performed with nothing more than an ice pick and a mallet. Old Hicks, a hypno-nightmare written and read by Craig Nibo, Part 2. 
A four-minute sprint gets you back to the east wing. You beat Brandon Nagley, the security officer on duty, to the gate, where you almost make a sliding stop into a scene that chills your blood. Someone has opened every room in the wing. An insane party rages on the other side of the gate as nearly a dozen patients systematically tear the place apart. Obstacles and debris clutter the hallway. Some of the patients have brought toilet paper from their rooms and are throwing them back and forth, causing rainbow streamers of the stuff to float to the floor. Pillows, blankets, books, and clothing litter the corridor. You could barely grasp how all this damage could have been done in the four minutes it took for you to get to the east wing. A couple of men, dressed in hospital gowns given to those who have, due to poor behavior, relinquished their rights to pants and shirts, pull out a drinking fountain mounted into the wall until it breaks free. Loose pipes explode, spraying a constant wash of water onto the floor. You search for Marcus Quills, the orderly you and Roe caught on blurry camera in Rebecca Petty's room. You don't see him in the din of this spontaneous party. Cyrus Glines, patient 15, his eyes black and blue from Dr. Freeman's procedure, spots you standing on the other side of the gate and runs at you. He hits the gate so hard that the thing rattles on its hinges. You step back and put a hand over your mouth. On your first day of training at Old Hicks, the instructor told you to never show fear. Although they're insane, the patients are not without intelligence. Some will attempt to manipulate you, using your fear as their main point of leverage. You can't seem to walk up to that early lesson from your orientation days. Dread floods into you. A dozen patients run free and there are only four of you on shift in the east wing. Nursing white, all a fright, Cyrus says. He flicks his tongue at you, eyes wide as he grabs the bars and begins a crazed dance. Nursing white, I want a bite. He growls like an animal and snaps his teeth at you. You back off another step. So much for Dr. Freeman's claim that his procedure mellows the behavior of problematic patients. As the water spreads, some of the patients turn the hallway into a makeshift water slide. They crunch up against the back wall, run for it, and collapse at full speed, sliding through the sludge, toilet paper, and debris, all laughs and glee. Two of the patients bring out a makeshift jump rope constructed of tied together bed sheets. They get on either end and begin whipping the rope around. Patient 17, Cyrus Glines, runs under the rope. He successfully jumps the circling sheets twice before slipping in the water and going down, laughing the whole time like a child. Marcus Quills pokes his head out from Rebecca Petty's open door. His bedraggled expression, open mouthed, eyes agape tell you that he has lost control of the situation. Rebecca must have hooked his keys while he was busy groping her. You want to scream at him, but the situation preempts your disdain for his libidinous act. Although you rightfully can't stomach Marcus Quills, part of you feels sympathy for him in the middle of all that mayhem. Everything changes when Marcus pushes further out to the hall. You realize that his cold, dead stare comes from a cold, dead face. Rebecca Petty, patient 16, steps out of her room, both hands on the shaft of the broom that hoists the severed head of Marcus Quills. With her macabre scepter in hand, she goes into a little dance to music that plays only in her own mind. 
She glances at you through her black and blue eyes, the result of Dr. Freeman's surgery, and smiles in a way that in other circumstances would be endearing. What the? Someone says behind you. You turn to see Brandon Nagley, the on-duty security guard. Who let them out? You aim a pale finger at the head, bobbing at the end of Rebecca Petty's broom handle. Brandon turns away from you and, after a couple of dry heaves, manages to keep his dinner down. The only door in the east wing has remained closed finally swings open. The number 18, stenciled in yellow, flashes as the metal slab rotates outward on its hinges. Zara Yates, a broad smile on her face, steps out of a room. She moves to the middle of the bedlam and looks at you. You pull in a quick breath as you look into her dark eyes, black and blue like Dr. Freeman's other patients. Zara doesn't wear her hospital gown. She's changed into a set of white men's clothing, slacks, and a button-down shirt. Her top shines red with drying blood, some of it slick, some of it flaking. You read the name embroidered on the shirt's left breast. Marcus, you recognize the little yellow smiley face button pinned above the name patch. We need to get some help, Brandon says, drawing a nightstick from his belt. Security officers are not allowed to carry guns in old hicks. Even having a nightstick is against the regulations. Brandon probably hooked it up on his way out after hearing the nature of the call from Roe. Why don't you head back to Roe's office and get on the phone? We're going to need the other team orderlies and the police. You nod and head out, leaving Brandon Nagley alone with more than a dozen hostile patients with a secured gate between them. You barge into Roe's hot security room and find him tossing everything important into a backpack. What are you doing, you say, struggling to catch your breath. I'm getting out of here. He shoots you an intense glance, then gets back to his packing. You can't leave. We need to get help to the east wing. That ship has sailed, Rose says, pointing at the long bank of monitors on his table. From the security panels, you see that patients from the east wing have gotten past Nagley and flooded into the institution. The same is happening in the other wings. On a few of the monitors, you spot staff members from other areas of the institution lying motionless on the floor, tossed over chairs, sprawled over desks in any number of cold poses. One of the monitors with a plastic engraved label that reads foyer gives you a bird's eye view of at least a dozen patients either wandering, lying down, or smashing at the front door of the institution with anything they can find, from broken office equipment to dislodged fire extinguishers. Debris lies scattered across the floor, bed sheets, papers, pieces of broken furniture, one of the patients sits in the corner holding her head, a wound pouring blood over her white hospital gown. Let me fill you in on what you missed while you were gone. You know Brandon Nagley, that nice security guard you left at the west wing gate? He's dead, practically torn to pieces by those crazies from the east wing. They took his and Marcus Quills' keys and have been letting out as many of their buddies as they can. If we don't get out of here now, we're going to be loony bait. What about the other teams? Road gestures toward the monitors. This riot is spreading like a virus. You want to know the worst part? Roe points at another of the screens. A view of the library. Books lie everywhere like dead birds. A man dances on a table in nothing but a t-shirt. His pants and underwear nowhere in sight. 
in the middle of the bedlam, Zara Yates, patient 18, stands. Her thin neck pokes out the bloody collar of Marcus Quills's too large uniform. She seems to stare at you through the lens. Your breathing quickens as you look into her dark eyes. As if she senses you on the other side of the security monitor, she smiles, revealing her set of decayed teeth. You stifle a whine and put your hand on the table to steady yourself. It has everything to do with that brain slicer, doesn't it? What's his name? Dr. Freeman? He's turned her into a, a monster. Rose stabs a finger towards Zara Yates. He tosses his backpack over his shoulder and heads for the door. Just before he leaves, he turns toward you. Are you coming? It takes a moment for you to process what's going on, to think through what Roe is asking. Can you really just leave the institution in anarchy? Have you called the police? You ask. Yes, they're on the way. But even if they get here on the quick, they aren't going to be able to just walk in and find us. It's going to be a flat-out combat situation. Okay, we can get out of here, but if we go looking like staff, they're going to cut us down the second we show our faces. You point at several of the lifeless staff members on the various screens. Ro winces and leans against the wall. Oh, what do you suggest? We go to the laundry. You point at one of the monitors showing an empty hallway. There aren't any patients in that area. We head down the chute, grab some gowns, and join the party. Rose spreads his hands in capitulation. Join the party? What does that mean? We just need to blend in. Rose rocks from foot to foot, biting his bottom lip. Okay, we'll do it your way. Before you came in, I watched Jameson Fennel and Edgar Raymond head into the infirmary. Rose points at the same monitor. Where's the camera inside the infirmary? You ask, looking at the bank of monitors. Rose points at one of the dead televisions. They knocked it out just before you came running in here. You bolster what confidence you can. We have a better chance against two than twenty. If we stick around, things are only going to get worse. Well, let's go then, Rowe says, wheeling around on his heel. Rowe! You grab his elbow. He turns to you. Leave the backpack. They aren't after your stuff. We need weapons. You scour the room and settle on the legs of one of the security tables. Help me with this table. Together you append the hardwood table, sending the televisions crashing to the floor. You kick free a couple of hardwood legs and hook them up. Do you have a magnetic security key? You ask. We'll need it to open the foyer doors. Roe opens a desk drawer and takes out a palm-sized black disc fashioned with a hinged key folded in on the front of the device. He gives it to you. You toss it into your pocket, brandishing makeshift clubs, you and Roe leave the security center and venture out into Old Hicks. You and Roe move down the hallway as quickly as you can while maintaining stealth. The riot hasn't poured into this area of the hospital yet. It seems the patients have focused their efforts on getting out rather than flooding their way through the entire building. Your confidence increases as you make yard after yard of ground, holding your table leg at the ready. If this keeps on... You'll make the two turns and three stretches of hallway to the laundry chute with no problems. As you round the corner, most of the lights go out. Someone has killed at least one circuit, maybe by shoving something metal into a light socket, or maybe by flicking switches in the panels in the electrical room. With limited visibility, you squeeze down on your weapon and slow your pace. 
You only have to make it to the end of the hallway, turn a corner, and you're all but home free. Two patients come around the bend ahead. You and Rose stop and look at one another. In the relative darkness, you can't make out much more than silhouettes, but one of the patients seems to be crouched down on all fours while the other stands over him, holding a makeshift leash made from bath towels or bed sheets. You and Roe back up against the wall, but before you're able to get out of sight, one of the patients barks at you. What do you see, boy? Who's up there? The other patient says. You recognize his voice. It's Cyrus Glines, longtime resident of East Wing confinement for serial rape and murder. You stifle the urge to hyperventilate and take a couple of controlled breaths. You step to the middle of the hallway. What are you doing? Rose says. You hold up a finger to quiet him. He mumbles something about you being as crazy as the patients in the joint. Mr. Glines, you say, lowering your weapon and taking a couple of steps toward the pair of patients. The man crouching on all fours barks at you, then settles into a grind of steady growling. Cyrus urges his dog along, and the two patients move toward you, master and animal. You don't want to do this, you say. And just what is it you think I'm going to do, Cyrus says. They'll clamp security down on you. They might even restrain you on a prolonged basis for these infractions. Cyrus and his dog continue their approach. Restrain me? On the contrary... He and his dog step into the illumination of one of the few functioning ceiling lights. I've never felt more free. You know, should you ever see him again, I'd like you to thank Dr. Freeman. His procedure has made me a new man. You take an unconscious step back before you can stop yourself. You remember that early lesson from your first day of work. Don't ever show fear. They smell fear like animals. Cyrus's thick lips peel into a smile as he moves toward you. This doesn't have anything to do with patient 18, does it? You ask, remembering how Zara Yates seemed to stare at you through Rose's security system. She's in my head, Cyrus says. I feel her there. She's in all of our heads. You know, she's kind of like my mama. Sometimes she even sings me to sleep at night, right here. Cyrus points at his temple, behind my eyes. And since Dr. Freeman gave me his gift, I can feel her there even more. Cyrus stops, now only 20 feet from you, his dog growling, pulling against its bedsheet leash, trying to break free, trying to get at you. We gotta go now, Rose says from behind you. His voice lacks conviction. He sounds petrified with fear can't rely on him should things spin out of control. My doggy, he seems to like you, Cyrus says. You need to stop this and head back to your room now. If you let this go, I'll put in a good word for you. I'll even discourage the administration from restraining you. Who knows, maybe I can even get you some extra time on the grounds. What do you say we find out just how much my doggy likes you? He's in heat, you know. You swallow and back away another step. Cyrus laughs. <laughs> His dog growls. Sick him, boy. Cyrus lets his bedsheet leash go. 
The dog, patient, pushes up to a bent-over crouch and runs at you, hands out, barking and spitting. Before you can raise your table-leg club, he's on you. He tackles you to the floor. Your head smashes against the tile, causing both of your ears to ring. Somehow you manage to keep your hold on the club. The dog sinks his teeth into your shoulder. You scream and look for Roe. At first you don't see him. He stands against a wall a couple of dozen steps away, eyes pried open in shock. Roe! You shout at him. Help me! Roe doesn't move. The dog bites again, this time on your forearm. Blood flows as he gnarls into your flesh. You drive a knee up into the dog's crotch. He issues a pain yelp and lets your arm go. He goes cross-sided as you land another knee between his legs. With a series of awkward kicks, you manage to scramble your upper body out from under him as he whimpers. You right your club, calculate your aim, and swing. The table leg sounds like a baseball bat slamming into a melon as it makes contact with the dog's head. The whimpering stops. The dog patient tips onto his side, erupting into a seizure. Saliva and white fluid dripping from his mouth as he quakes on the floor next to you. Before you can get up, Cyrus stands over you, staring down at you with a face full of rage, his eyes seated in a pair of black and blue pillow cheeks. You killed my dog, you bitch. No, Cyrus. He falls on you, driving a knee into your ribs in the bargain. Your wind leaves and you begin gasping. Now, in a fight for oxygen, you drop your club. Cyrus straddles you, staring down at you, a tear falling from his right eye. I'll teach you who's the master and who's the animal, he says. He winds up and slaps you across the face, causing your head to snap sideways. You raise your arms to protect yourself, but Cyrus isn't after your face. He puts his hands on your smock top and tears it down the middle, revealing your bra, practical and white. Jettison buttons snick on the floor all around you. You close your eyes and sob. You feel his hands on you. His breathing escalates. He issues a cold, almost inhuman moan as he caresses you. Wham! Something slams into him from behind. You open your eyes. Rose stands over Cyrus, table leg club at the ready for a second swing. Cyrus recovers from the blow and glances over his shoulder just in time to catch one in the temple. Roe hits him with unyielding force. A fan of blood and dislodged teeth fly from Cyrus's mouth as he jerks sideways and collapses on the tile next to you. You push up onto your elbows and crab smear away from him, vaguely aware of the non-cohesive gibberish that comes from your lips. When you're finally free of Cyrus Glines, patient 17, and his dog, your looping mind gives you permission to comprehend what has just happened and to align you with your surroundings. You come out of your panicked stupor to Roe leaning over you, hand extended. More inclined to stand without his assistance, you don't take his offer. You close your top as you get to your feet. You hook up your table leg and move ahead. This way to the laundry chute. Roe falls in behind you as you push down the half-lit corridor. When you reach the laundry chute, you check both ways before opening the little waist-level door in the wall. You peer down the long slide that leads to the hamper below. It's too dark to see if anyone is down there. We gotta move, Rose says. You hold up a finger to quiet him. 
After a moment of silence, except for the distant sound of the ensuing riot at the hospital's exits, you decide it's safe to go. Do you want me to go first? Roe asks. The lack of conviction in his voice translates this statement into something more like, I could go first, but I'm really scared. I'd rather you offer to go first, then I'm off the hook. I got this, you say. You knee up onto the opening and shift around onto your bottom. Hugging the makeshift club close, you let yourself go and zip down the chute. A short, whooshing ride takes you down one floor to a room that smells like soap and old linen. You land in a pile of sheets, towels, and unwashed hospital clothing. You get out of the enormous hamper and wait for Roe, who comes sliding down a few seconds later. You and Roe raid the clean laundry rack and pick out white outfits that the most privileged patients are allowed. Slacks and buttonless pullover shirts. Slip-on shoes, no laces. We're crazy to do this, Rose says as he pulls a white shirt over his body. We should have gotten out while we could. I think you've already seen what they do to staff out there. You're careful to transfer the magnetic security key from your smock to the hip pocket of your stolen white slacks. Are, are you okay? Rose sobers and looks up from where he crouches on a pair of white slip-on shoes. I'll be fine if we can get out of this, you say, not caring to discuss the finer points of Cyrus Glines' violation of your body. Patient 18 is somehow at the center of all this. You heard what Cyrus said about her. He called her his mama. You wince at the thought of that. I think somehow Dr. Freeman's procedure amplified her influence, particularly on the four others who went under the ice pick. We need to be especially careful of them. Well, you got that right, Rose says. I think we might have a chance to regain control of the situation if we can get to Zara Yates. I don't like where this is going, Rose fixes you with a sideways glance. You're going to like this even less. We need to find her before things get any worse. I don't know how things could get any worse, Rose says. And what is all this about finding Zara Yates? I think that if we could take her out, most of the rioting will end. I hate to admit it, but it makes a strange kind of sense. They seem to be mostly converging on the foyer and other exits. We need to get there now. You push through the laundry room exit and walk to a nearby stairwell. Ro huffs a sigh as he follows you out. This has been Old Hicks, a hypno-nightmare written and read by Craig Nibo. For the song today, I offer another track from my musical, Tesla v. Cthulhu. The Kickstarter is well underway. I'd be absolutely elated if you'd consider backing the project. You can get a digital download for a great price, or, if you like, back it at a slightly higher level to get an autographed CD. You can get more information by visiting craignibo.com, or you can go directly to kickstarter.com and search for the project Tesla v. Cthulhu, a musical. This song finds the very arrogant Nikola Tesla chained up between a pair of electromagnetic coils, prisoner to the cultist witch Jerusha and her two sisters. He sings about how terrible the world would be after he is dead and gone. I now give you the Columbus Egg. 
for those who long for mercy from darkness in the night I stand the likely savior the one who brings them light and so I tap this message in my metallic throne in hopes of bringing rescue in hopes that This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please, come again. You're welcome here. (laughs) 